confrontation. Confrontation. For some of you, that is a word that makes your skin crawl. Confrontation. I think for many of us, it's, it's a word that can get the, the stomach acid churning, make the palms clammy, and, and have, us, have us looking for an exit. Confrontation. It's, it's something that many people fear. We often hate being confronted with confrontation. We fear that idea, the idea of confrontation in our everyday lives, whether it's in our jobs, uh, on, in our marriages, or, or with our kids. When the, the prospect of confrontation is on the horizon, our hearts are often quick to say, I'd rather not. I'd rather not. We'd rather not enter into confrontation. So what do we do? We look for alternatives. Alternatives. Maybe we have a, a boss who is always pushing the good graces of our schedule. He, he or she is always taking advantage of our propensity to say yes. They're taking advantage of it by adding more and more hours or, or taking more and more hours away from our schedule so that the amount of time that you're actually working looks nothing like the job for which you signed up. But we don't say anything, right? Because that would mean confrontation. Confrontation. So what do we do? We look for alternatives. Alternatives like grumbling about our boss behind his back. Or venting about their approach when we get home and talk to our spouse. Can you believe he scheduled me again? We're just stewing on all of it in our heart, letting bitterness and worry and frustration fester there. We avoid confrontation and we come up with some, some pretty unhealthy alternatives. Or, or maybe for you it's, it's not with the boss. Instead, it, it's your spouse with whom you avoid confrontation. Maybe there are things going on in your marriage that you feel like, like these things really need to be addressed. And I'm not talking about, you know, small, petty things like he didn't put the toilet seat down or she didn't put gas in the car. She left it empty when she brought it back. I mean, I mean real things in your marriage. But you don't ever bring them up. You don't ever sit down and really talk about them because you're afraid of how your spouse will respond. Or, or maybe, maybe you did bring them up that one time, but it didn't go well. So now those issues get buried. They get buried, and what you do is you look for alternatives. Alternatives like griping to your friends about that spouse of yours. Or alternatives like flirting with that coworker at work to take your mind off the issues in your marriage. Or alternatives like retreating into some hobby or, or some other activity to distract you from those needs in your relationship. But here's the thing. The problems don't go away, do they? The relationships continue to get chilly, and our hearts continue to grow bitter. Yet our fear of confrontation keeps us from really addressing the issues. And here's the thing. I see the same thing happening with parents and their kids. A fear of confrontation can keep parents from addressing issues that need to be addressed with their kids. Let me give you an example. Instead of a parent telling their child no and having confrontation... What do they do? They, they offer alternatives. They give options. Rather than simply saying, Jimmy, stop jumping on the couch. They say, instead of jumping on the couch, little Jimmy, why don't you come play with this toy? Or why don't you watch this movie? Or why don't you eat this candy? They give them options. But here's the thing. What's really at the root of that is not what's best for the child. Not a desire of what's best for the child. Instead, what's at the root of that approach is a fear of confrontation. We parents don't want to deal with our child's fleshly heart pushing back on our rules. So we just give them 
options. We act like confrontation is something to be avoided, so we reach for an alternative. We give them options, and in the process, we abdicate our authority as parents. But here's the thing about confrontation. As much as we don't like it, it is the reality of our world. Amen? It's the reality of our world. It's part, it's the reality of our world. It's part of living life in a fallen world. There are going to be, in this fallen world, there are going to be struggles in our relationships. There are going to be bosses who take advantage of your schedule. There are going to be children who don't want to obey. There are going to be spouses who struggle to grow and change. That's the reality of living in a fallen world. That's the reality of living in a world where, where sin has been let loose and it's doing damage. That's the reality of living this side of Eden. But here's the thing. Even back in Eden, there was need for confrontation. Even back in Eden, there was need for confrontation. Back in Genesis 3, when that serpent came up to Eve, intoxicating her with his lies and his deceptions about God and his goodness, there was a need for confrontation, right? Er, Eve should have rebuked that serpent with the truth. That's not the way God is. Adam should have stood firm on the promises of God, confronting the folly of his wife. But remember, God said, but neither of them did. And so they shied away from confrontation, and it cost all of us. It cost all of us. See, confrontation is a reality of life in this world. Confrontation, as much as we don't like it, is a reality of life in this world. And it's a necessary thing in this world. It's a necessary thing. It's necessary. Confrontation is necessary when evil comes against good. It's necessary. It's necessary when error comes against truth. It's necessary when what is right for us is being pushed out by something that is destructive. Confrontation is necessary. There are hills to die on. You know what I mean by that? There are hills to die on. There are issues that are important. There are issues that are significant. There are issues that are worthy of confrontation. Amen? Like, I don't know if I want to say amen to that because I don't know where he's going with this yet. But there are hills to die on. Things that are destructive in your marriage, they need to be addressed. They need to be addressed. Your, your child's rebellious heart, moms and dads, your child's rebellious heart needs to be confronted. It needs to be confronted. Situations that are causing bitterness or anxiety, or frustration, because you aren't dealing with them, they need to be dealt with. There are issues worthy of confrontation. And freedom comes, freedom comes from dealing with them. Freedom comes from dealing with them. Freedom can come through confrontation. Freedom can come through confrontation. Now, we don't often think of it that way, do we? We don't think of confrontation as freeing. Instead, we often think of it as stressful and taxing and it it makes me all tight and I get anxious. We think of it as binding. But in what I'm going to show you this morning, I want us all to see the freeing power of confrontation. The freeing power of confrontation. I want us all to see that the right kind of confrontation leads you to the right kind of freedom. The right kind of confrontation will lead you to the right kind of freedom. Now, here's the thing. There are wrong kinds of confrontation. There are wrong kinds of confrontation. There's confrontation that isn't driven by truth or by goodness or by loving what is right. Said it's driven by a fleshly selfishness. 
It's the kind of confrontation that we witness when a parent explodes in rage at a misbehaving child. It's the kind of confrontation that makes us cringe when we watch spouses screaming at one another. Or or we watch an employee quit his job just because he knows it's going to leave his employer in a bind. I'm not giving my two weeks notice. They can just deal with it. That's not the right kind of confrontation. And it won't lead to the right kind of freedom. It won't lead to the right kind of freedom. Now what I'm talking about, the right kind of confrontation that will lead to the right kind of freedom, is what we'll witness this morning in Paul's letter to the Galatians. That's what we'll witness actually in Paul's approach to the Galatians. So if you haven't done so already, I invite you now to take your Bibles and turn over to the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. We're going to be working through text this morning from Galatians. And so if you're here with us this morning and you're visiting and you don't have a Bible, maybe you don't got one on your phone or and bring one with you this morning. Go ahead and slide your hand up and we'll get one of the ushers to come over and get you a, a Bible. That way you can be following along with us as we work through this. So Galatians chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me just remind you that as we've seen throughout our study of this letter, Galatians is all about confrontation. It's all about confrontation. Paul is writing to these churches in Galatia and he is confronting them with some hard truth. He's confronting them because these churches in Galatia, young churches made up of new Christians, these churches were drifting. They were drifting. Remember, Paul had planted these churches in Galatia, and he had planted these churches by preaching to them the the beautiful, simple, glorious truth of the gospel. But they, they were starting to drift from that. Paul planted these churches. He, he preached to them the glorious, simple truth of the gospel that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. Salvation, which is what we need, is ours. Paul had preached that to them. He had preached salvation is ours. Salvation is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. Paul had taught them this. Salvation, which we need, is ours. He had taught them this. He had taught them that, that we are all sinners. We need salvation. We're all sinners living before a holy God. And because we have spurned God's authority, because we have rebelled against his good ways, because we have turned from the truth and willingly embraced a lie, we are all, every single one of us, we're all sinners and we're all under God's judgment. There is a confrontation coming. There is a confrontation coming. The just and sovereign Lord of the universe the Holy One, must address, must judge our rebellion. It must be dealt with. But Paul also made clear to these folks in Galatia how we can be saved from that judgment. We can be saved from that confrontation that we deserve through the rescuing grace of God. But here's the thing about God's rescuing grace. God's rescuing grace is not a grace that just winks at our sin. Just, we'll just ignore that. We'll just overlook that. It's not a grace that's afraid of confrontation. Instead, it's a grace that takes that confrontation to us and puts it on another person. Another person actually dealt with the consequences of our sin. God the Son took upon himself our humanity. He lived the life that we failed to live. He, he died the death that we deserve. He actually took the punishment that all of our sins deserve. That's what we celebrated this morning around the Lord's table. Jesus actually died for our sins. 
The confrontation that we deserve between our sin and God's holiness, it actually fell upon him. Paul taught them this. He taught them that 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 salvation is given to us. This finished work of Christ is actually credited to our account simply by faith. Faith in Jesus. As we turn from trusting in us and our ways and our works and our efforts and trust instead in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we receive this gift of salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone. And that's what Paul had preached in Galatia. And as he had preached that, men and women, some from Jewish backgrounds, some from non-Jewish backgrounds, they had embraced it. They had become Christians. They were looking to Christ for their salvation. But now, these churches were starting to drift from that. And they were drifting from that because they had started to receive some contrary teaching. Jewish teachers, like Paul, who claimed to be Christians, like Paul, had shown up in Galatia. They'd come to town. But the gospel that these new Jewish teachers were preaching wasn't like Paul's gospel. It wasn't, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. Instead, it was, grace and faith might get you started, but you have to finish the work of Christ with your own works. You've got to add those in there. It was, Jesus' works plus your works earns you. God's blessing, it earns you salvation. And as Paul makes very clear in chapter one of this letter, that is a different gospel. It's not really the gospel. It's not really good news. That's what the word gospel means, good news. It's not really good news. Instead, that other message, that's enslaving, and it's an enslaving gospel. And Paul drives that point home here in chapter four. Look at what he writes starting in verse 21 of chapter four. Verse 21. Paul asks them, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And this was the problem there in Galatia. That's the salvation by works that these Jewish teachers were peddling. They were peddling life under the law. They were telling these new Christians that in order to, to truly be godly, in order to truly be part of God's people, you need to live according to the Old Testament law. They argue that you need to keep the Old Testament feasts and festivals and dietary restrictions. If you were a male, you needed to be circumcised. They were telling the Galatians that true spirituality and salvation comes through obedience to the Old Testament law. But here Paul explains to them, if that's what you really believe, you're not really listening. You're not really paying attention. You're not really listening to what God has laid out very clearly in the Old Testament. As as we looked at two weeks ago, Paul here uses a story from biblical history from the Old Testament to teach them about redemptive history. Paul teaches about the way that salvation, that redemption always works cover to cover in the scriptures. Look what he says, verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and Paul says she is our mother. Now, 
won't this morning walk you through all the details that we looked at from this text two weeks ago. But let me just summarize Paul's argument here. First, he's making the point that there are two kinds of people, just like Abraham had two kinds of sons. There are those who are in bondage, and there are those who are free. And those who are in bondage are like Abraham's son Ishmael, his son through Hagar. And Ishmael was born through fleshly means. He was the result of Abraham and Sarah trying to fast track God's covenant promises. Remember, God had promised Abraham a people. But in Abraham's life, that promise seemed long in coming to fulfillment. Sarah wasn't able to get pregnant. Years went by. So Sarah went to Abraham and she said, hey, why don't you give it a go with my slave girl, Hagar? So he did. And Hagar got pregnant. She had a son. But he was a son born into slavery because he was born outside of God's covenant promise. He was born through Hagar, not through Sarah. And that son would not be part of God's people because he was, as verse 23 says in our text, born according to the flesh. According to the flesh. He was simply a child born of human effort, a child of human fleshly works. And what Paul does here is he draws this line from Hagar and Ishmael to all those who are trying to bring about God's promises by their own fleshly efforts. They take things like like the covenant that God made at Sinai, the Mosaic covenant of law, and they embrace it like a system to be worked. And that's what these Jewish, Jewish teachers were promoting in Galatia. But Paul says to them, that's not how it works. That's just slavery. You're just enslaving yourself to a fleshly system that won't bring about God's promises. You're living like a son of Hagar. You're living like a bastard child of Abraham. That's not the way this works. And then Paul says, and there's, a, there's another way. There's a better way. He hits them with verse 26. But the Jerusalem above is what? Free. And she is our mother. And what Paul is doing there is he's reminding the Galatians of who they are in Christ. They are those who are free. They are those who are like Abraham's son Isaac, born of promise. The Galatian Christians, these Galatian Christians are the true people of God. They are born through God's sovereign power. They are born not by works of the flesh, but by the grace of promise. And Paul here then draws a, a dividing line between these Christians in Galatia and these Jewish teachers who were promoting legalism. And he says again, there's two kinds of people. There are those who are enslaved to works. And there are those who are free, who are born of promise. And you, you who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ alone, you are free. The work's all done. You're not back under that system of slavery. You're free. You are the free people of God. Paul wants them to understand that. But Paul continues, as the free people of God, you need to do something. You need to enter into some confrontation. You need to enter into some confrontation. And that's really where this text, with all of its talk about Hagar and covenants, that's really where this text is going. That's actually the climax of this text in verse 30. That's what it's really driving at. Paul's going to show the Galatians that the right kind of confrontation leads to the right kind of freedom. However, before we look at that confrontation in verse 30, I want to unpack how how Paul sets it up. I want to show you first how Paul teaches us that the right kind of confrontation is driven by joyful truth. The right kind of confrontation is driven by joyful truth. It's driven by joyful truth. Not fleshly selfishness, not ungodly fear and frustration, but joyful truth, joyful truth. Look at the text. Paul reminds his readers here in verse 27 
of what good news this salvation is. Look at the text. He says, for it is written, rejoice, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And here what Paul is doing is he's calling his readers to celebrate what God has done. And he's calling his readers to celebrate what God has done by quoting an Old Testament prophet. He's actually quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. This quote actually comes from Isaiah chapter 54. Now here's the thing. Isaiah 54 was written to God's people who were in exile. Uh, although though God gave it to Isaiah long before the exile, the prophecy of Isaiah 54 was originally directed to Jewish exiles who were living out in Babylon. And those people, those Jewish exiles, they had watched the destruction of their, their beloved home city, Jerusalem. They'd watched the Babylonians come in and raise it to the ground. I mean, just absolutely decimate it, decimate the temple. And those people felt like life as the people of God was over. Jerusalem's gone. The temple's gone. Life is over. We are desolate. They thought life was over for them. But it wasn't. It wasn't. God had a plan. Guess what? God always has a plan. Amen? God always has a plan. And God had a plan. It was a plan to do something miraculous for his people. And that plan would begin by by God regathering his people back into their homeland. And it would continue with the restoration of the city of Jerusalem and eventually the rebuilding of the temple. So she who was barren, the city of Jerusalem, would again have children. They would rejoice. The people would return. But here's the thing. That was only the start. That was only sorry. See, Paul here, he discerns much more than just the restoration of an earthly city in this prophecy, this promise of Isaiah 54. He, he finds much more in this promise because, because of a promise that comes right before the promise of Isaiah 54. Does anybody remember the, the focus of the chapter that comes right before Isaiah 54? Anybody remember the focus of the chapter Isaiah 53? Anybody remember? Yeah. Let me refresh our memory. I'll quote, I'll read you a verse from Isaiah 53. This is Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And the hymn mentioned in that verse, mentioned in verse 6 of chapter 53, is the suffering servant of Isaiah. The one who is the, the focal point of all of chapter 53. And as scripture makes very clear, that suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is none other than who? Okay, like six or eight of you got it. It's none other than Jesus Christ, right? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is Jesus Christ. Scripture makes that plain, makes that clear. Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus Christ and his atoning death for our sins. And so Paul sees this promise in Isaiah 54 as a further extension of these promises of Isaiah 53. So so this call to rejoice over God's provision, like, like a barren woman who is blessed with a multitude of children, is about more than just earthly Jerusalem being restored. It's about God bringing forth a heavenly people born of a heavenly city through a heavenly Savior, the suffering servant who is Jesus Christ. This is really a promise about God bringing these things forth from nothing. From nothing. That's what Paul's seeing here. God's going to do this from nothing. Like, like barren Sarah in her old age. How old was Sarah when she had Isaac? 
Like Baron Sarah in her old age, giving birth to Isaac. Like, like desolated Jerusalem, again, raised to the ground by the Babylonians and, and just completely desolate from people for 70 years. There was nothing. That city finding life again. Paul's saying that's the way God's, of God's work with God's people. God brings life from nothing. He brings life from nothing. He created the universe, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And he does the same thing in our salvation. Amen? Out of nothing. God brings life out of nothing. He brings life from nothing through no works of our own. It's all by his miraculous, sovereign power. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen? Salvation is of the Lord. And so... Like a, a barren, desolate woman who now has an abundance of children, we too should rejoice. The people of God should rejoice in what God has provided. It wasn't of us. We're like the desolate one. We have no hope, but God comes in and all of a sudden there's this abundance. This, call, this text is a call to rejoice. And I think that's one of the reasons that Paul chose this text from Isaiah 54. Because the text is, it's a text all about celebration. I mean, again, look at the text here. He quotes, and he says, rejoice, break forth, which that, that word could be translated as explode. <laughs> explode with joy. Cry aloud, he says. Not, not with the agony of childbirth, but with delight over what God has done. Paul is saying here, get excited about the salvation that you enjoy. Do we need to hear that message? <laughs> yeah, we do. Get excited about the salvation that we, jo- we enjoy. God has made something out of nothing. He has given you everything. And, and it's without you having to do anything, Christ has done it all and we get it all. Praise Jesus. Amen? Christ has done it all and we get it all. God has forgiven us all our sin. Past, present, future, forever. He's given us all, forgiven us all our sin. He has cleansed us. He is with us. You're not alone. As a Christian, you are never alone. You're never bearing your burdens by yourself. Amen. He is with us, sustaining us, working all things for good for us, giving us eternity, giving us a forever family, filling us with his spirit, giving us his word, making us, we who were rebels against him, making us his own precious children. The sons and daughters of his love. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing better than being a Christian. Amen? There is nothing better than being a Christian. And Paul wants his readers to remember that, to see the joy and the delight in that. Because that joyful truth calls forth confrontation. That joyful truth calls forth confrontation. You see, these Jewish teachers who were confusing the Galatians had a different message. They had a different message. They were preaching salvation through human efforts. God blessed God's blessings because you worked for them. To them, grace was not something that you were given. It wasn't a gift. It was something you had to earn. Salvation was not of the mighty arm of the Lord. It was salvation by the sweat of your brow. And that isn't a message of joy. That's not a message of joy. That's a system of bondage. A system of bondage. But here's the thing. By letting that message into their churches and not pushing back against it, not confronting it, the Galatians were allowing that contrary message to come in and rob them of their joy. 
come in and rob them of their joy. They were letting it veil the good news of the good news. So Paul calls them back to that place of understanding, seeing the joyful truth of what God has done, and letting that lead them then into the confrontation of verse 30. However, again, before we look at verse 30, Paul has another brick to lay, another piece of this foundation for right confrontation. Not only is right confrontation driven by joyful truth, the right kind of confrontation is grounded in sobering reality. It's grounded in sobering reality. Yes, there is nothing better than being a Christian. There's nothing better. This salvation that we've been given is cause for rejoicing. But that doesn't mean that the Christian life is easy. It doesn't mean that the Christian life is easy. You see, sometimes we get confused about this. We Christians get confused about this. We think that now that we're Christians, we've landed on easy street. Like now, now it's going to be nothing but peaches and cream from here on out. There's actually a, a heretical system that runs rampant through the churches in America that actually teaches this silliness. It's called the prosperity gospel. And teachers of the prosperity gospel, teachers of prosperity theology, people like Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Paul White, others, they argue that God wants you healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And it's all there for you is if you just have enough faith. They teach that the Christian life is all about peaches and cream. It's all about all these earthly blessings and ease and prosperity. You just got to jump through the right hoops. However, all you need to do is just look at the earthly life of Jesus to see the error in such teaching. Who lived a more faithful life than Jesus? Anyone? No one. And how did his life end? Crucifixion. Look at the life of the apostles. Or just crack a book, church history, and you will see the folly in this teaching of prosperity theology. Faithful Christianity often doesn't lead to ease and prosperity. Often in church history, it's led to martyrdom. But even though the system is clearly erroneous, that teaching appeals to something inside of us. It appeals to something inside of us. It appeals to this desire for, for ease and a prosperous life. And, and sometimes we're tempted. We want to believe that Christianity is our meal ticket to such a life. And, and I know that this desire is down there inside of so many of us because we all seem so shocked by suffering. Amen? We all seem, we seem surprised by the trials, even though the Bible says don't be surprised by the trials. But we do. When we pray... We always seem to pray that our sickness would be removed instead of asking God to use that sickness to grow us and make us more like Jesus. And as I say this, I want you to know, I struggle with this just as much as anyone else. I like my comfort. You don't get a figure like this without enjoying some comfort. I have a prosperity gospel heart, a fleshliness inside of me that longs for ease and comfort. But I think that, that fleshliness is what drives us from confrontation, makes us run away from confrontation. We, we can act like it's foreign to the system, like it doesn't belong in our Christian life. We carry on like we think that Jesus saved us from confrontation. But here's the thing, following Jesus actually means following Jesus, and his life was marked with what? Confrontation. Confrontation. And Paul's bringing up that point right here. He reminds his readers that in spite of our prosperity gospel hearts, confrontation is a reality 
of the Christian life. Look at the text in verses 28 and 29. Paul explains, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh. He's talking about Ishmael persecuted. He was born according to the spirit. He's talking about Isaac. So also it is now. In other words, there is going to be conflict, Paul says. And it's rooted, you need to understand this, it's rooted in who you are. It's rooted in who you are. And, and here Paul illustrates this from, again, from the life of Abraham's two sons. Remember Ishmael and Isaac, they were part of the same family. They dwelt in the same household. But they had very different positions in that household. Ishmael was the son of a slave woman. He was born into slavery. He wasn't viewed as the one who had the rights and the positions of Abraham's firstborn. Because he wasn't born through Abraham's wife. He was a bastard child born of fleshly and foolish means. But Isaac, Isaac was the son that God had given. He was born according to promise. He was born by the working of the spirit. He was born according to God's truth. And that made him the heir of everything. But that didn't mean that his life was easy. That didn't mean that his life was easy. His older brother Ishmael made sure of that. Paul says he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Now, the scripture doesn't give us the full picture of that persecution. There's other extra biblical Jewish writings that go into some of those details. Scripture doesn't give us a full picture of that persecution, but it does record for us one occasion back in Genesis chapter 21 where there was a party held in Isaac's honor. And at that time, Isaac was about two or three years old. Ishmael was 16 or 17 years old. And at that party, instead of rejoicing in his younger sibling, Ishmael mocked and derided his younger brother. He ridiculed the child of promise, treating the entire thing like it was one big joke. But here's the major problem with that. It wasn't just that here's Ishmael, an older brother, ridiculing his younger brother. Ishmael was ridiculing the work of God. He was ridiculing the work of God. Instead of standing there and being in awe of what God had done, Ishmael was treating the child of promise like the butt of a joke. He was hostile towards his younger brother because of who his younger brother was. And that was the root of the conflict. Isaac was being persecuted because of who he was. You see, here's the thing. Being a child of promise doesn't mean a life free from confrontation. It doesn't mean a life free from confrontation. It doesn't mean a life free from difficulty or conflict. Instead, Paul says to them here, just the opposite. As it was then, so also it is now. The children born of the flesh will always persecute those born of the Spirit. The children born of the flesh will always persecute those born of the Spirit. And that's exactly what was going on in Galatia. These legalistic Jews were mocking these Gentile Galatian Christians. They were ridiculing these Gentiles for foolishly believing. How could you, a Gentile, just by trusting in Jesus, become part of the people of God? That's ridiculous. They were ridiculing these Galatian Christians. What God except to you simply because of your faith in Jesus. They're mocking them. But here's the thing. That's what legalists always do. That's what legalists always do. They always persecute those who cling to grace. And they do that because there's a fundamental difference. Again, look at the text. Look what Paul says here in verse 29. He describes these two sons with some very key, very important terminology. He describes one son as born according to the what? Flesh. 
and the other son is born according to the spirit. And here's the thing, the flesh and the spirit are always in opposition to each other. They're always in opposition to each other. When we get to chapter 5, Paul's going to tell us there in Galatians 5 verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They are opposed to each other. This is always the way that it is. Over in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 7. Romans 8, 5 to 7. Paul puts it this way. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. For the mindset on the flesh, listen to this. For the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It's hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's laws. It does not submit to God's ways. Indeed, it cannot, Paul says. And this is why those of the flesh always persecute those of the spirit. This is why legalists will always attack those who cling to grace. They attack those who cling to grace. You can understand this. They attack those who cling to grace because they themselves feel attacked by grace. Let me explain what I mean. Legalists hate grace because grace attacks their legalistic pride. They hate grace because grace attacks their legalistic pride. The gospel comes to them and it says, you can't do it. You can't do it. You're not good enough. You never will be. So humble yourself and receive the salvation of the Lord. But the heart that is set on the flesh, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to that. It clings to pride. And so it persecutes those who are born of the spirit. Because they are an offense. They are an offense to the legalists. Those who are born of the spirit are an offense to any whose mind is set on the flesh. God's people, gospel people, God's people of grace will always be persecuted. Always be persecuted. See what Paul's describing here? This wasn't just true in first century Galatia. This has been true all throughout church history. All throughout church history. From the death of Stephen, the first martyr of the church, to the battles in the days of St. Augustine, to the burning of John Huss, to the excommunication of Martin Luther, to the stands taken by godly men, stands that cost them tremendously, godly men like Charles Spurgeon and Martin Lloyd-Jones, to modern-day Christian martyrs in Muslim countries who die because they preach a message of salvation by grace, not by works. Those who are born of the Spirit will always be persecuted by those born of the flesh because their message of grace is an offense to the flesh because it confronts the flesh. That's reality. That's reality, brothers and sisters. And it's a sobering reality. It's the reality of the Christian life. But it's not a reality that calls us to run and hide. It's not a reality that calls us to run and hide. Look again at the text. Look what Paul says. He's just spoken to them of the joy of the good news. He's addressed the reality of persecution. But then he says to the Galatians in verse 30, what does he say? But what does scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. You see here, Paul doesn't tell them, run and hide. He doesn't tell them, run and hide. He doesn't tell them, preach a message of tolerance and acceptance of fleshly beliefs and legalistic religion. We can all just get along. It's not what he says. Instead, he calls the Galatians to stand and confront the situation in their churches. 
He shows us all that the right kind of confrontation rightly confronts. It does something. It confronts. Yes, it's driven by joyful truth. Yes, it's grounded in sobering reality. But at the end of the day, the right kind of confrontation rightly confronts. It confronts. Paul tells him, you need to deal with the situation. And he does this by, again, returning to the story of Ishmael and Isaac. Back in Genesis 21, after Ishmael mocked Isaac at that party, Sarah, Abraham's wife, Isaac's mother, she'd had enough. And here, Paul actually quotes what Sarah said to Abraham. She told Abraham, cast out. Cast out the slave woman and her son. Abraham, get rid of them. And at first glance, Sarah's words appear a bit harsh. Get rid of them. But as commentator Leon Morris rightly points out, in the providence of God, and remember that scene, Abraham was struggling, he came to God, and God said, no, this is what you need to do. You need to cast her out. In the providence of God, Sarah's command Morris says, open the way for it to be made plain to everyone that it was Isaac and not Ishmael, the older son, whose descendants were to be born the people of God. So so God used this action, this confrontation, to make clear his plan for his people. And Paul's calling for a similar action here. Just like Sarah said to Abraham, Paul is saying to the Galatians, stand and act. Stand and act. He's telling the Galatians that these two contrary approaches, these two contrary gospels, they cannot continue to coexist side by side in your churches. Again, remember Paul's allegory here. Hagar and Ishmael represent the covenant of works and people who try to use that approach to secure salvation. They believe that by their own efforts and their own merits, they can earn God's salvation. But that's bondage. That's enslaving. And that's not the way of God. That's not the way of God. That's not the true gospel. Instead, that gospel is a damning gospel because salvation doesn't come by our works. So if we were preaching that, they're preaching a damning gospel. So there's no place for that in the church. There's no place for coexistence between the true gospel and a false gospel. You muddy the waters when it comes to the gospel. You're messing with the glory of God. You're messing with the souls of men and women. You're messing with matters of eternity. You don't do that. There's no place for a false gospel in the church of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, drive it out. Drive it out. Stand and confront the situation. He calls them to confrontation. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters. This confrontation wasn't going to be easy. I say this all the time. This really happened. (laughs) This isn't just hypothetical stuff. This was really going on in the church. And Paul says, you really need to deal with it. And it wasn't going to be easy because these Galatian false teachers, they had integrated themselves into the life of the church. They had influence. They presented themselves with authority. They mocked Paul's authority. But the truth was worth the cost of confrontation. There are hills to die on. Amen? The truth was worth the cost of confrontation. The gospel is worth it. So these Galatians, driven by the joyful truth of the gospel, grounded in the sobering reality of living as persecuted people, they needed to act. They needed to realize that right confrontation rightly confronts. But what does that look like? Let me ask your question. What does that look like? Well, in the churches of Galatia, it looked like showing these Jewish false teachers the door. That's what it looked like. It looked like confronting them with the authoritative apostolic teaching of the Apostle Paul and making clear to them, if you're preaching another gospel, you are not welcome here. 
There's the door. And yeah, that wasn't going to be easy. Um, it might have caused some fireworks in those churches. People might have left those churches. Um, others might have lost friendships. Things might have gotten real challenging. But being a place where the truth of the gospel and the freedom that it gives is clear and obvious, it's worth it. It's worth it. And the same is true in the modern church. As Christians, we need to be clear. We need to be clear on the gospel. Amen? We need to be clear on the gospel. We need to be clear that by grace we have been saved through faith. And it's not of our own doing, right? It's the gift of God on a result of works so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We need to be clear on the gospel. And when teachers in the modern church or movements in the modern church push against that, when they start to muddy the waters, we need to call that out. That's why I didn't have a problem this morning naming the, those prosperity preachers for you. Those people are muddying the waters. They're preaching a false gospel. They're bringing a false gospel into Jesus' church. Don't embrace their message. It's not the true gospel. Don't embrace their message. Instead, brothers and sisters, let's keep working hard to keep the main thing the main thing. Amen? Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's commit to digging into the scriptures, teaching them faithfully in their context, and letting them continue to point our hearts to the glory of Jesus Christ in his gospel. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. And this is how we can take this seriously in our own church. We need to diligently pursue being Christ-centered, calling one another to live in and live out of the riches of the gospel. It's laid out for us clearly in the scriptures. And really doing that, brothers and sisters, it starts with confrontation right here in your own heart. It starts with confrontation right there in your own heart. We have to confront the legalist within. You know what I mean by that? We have to confront the legalist within. We have to confront our pride our boasting, our foolishness that acts like this is all riding on us. We have to confront those prosperity gospel hearts, our hearts that are tempted to love comfort more than they love the truth. Confrontation, really fleshing out what Paul is saying here. It begins right here in our own hearts. But when we do that, when we confront them, when we remind ourselves of who we are by God's grace, when we remind ourselves as Paul in verse 31 reminds the Galatians, brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. When we remind ourselves of that, that confrontation brings freedom. Amen? That confrontation brings freedom. You see, the good news in all this talk this morning about confrontation is the right kind of confrontation leads to the right kind of freedom. The right kind of confrontation leads to the right kind of freedom. And I'll wrap up this morning with this. The right kind of confrontation leads to the right kind of freedom. And this is true in the church. This is true in the church. In the church, please understand this. In the church, when we are driven by joyful truth, when we long for one another to live in the delight of the gospel, that's what I mean. When we are driven by joyful truth, and when our lives are rooted in the reality that persecution and conflict are part of the Christian life, when we stop being surprised by it, and when we are willing to step up and act to confront those things that need confrontation from that place of joyful truth, understanding the reality of flesh against the spirit, when we're willing to step up and act, that leads to a place where the gospel can thrive. The gospel can thrive. When we stop muddying the waters, God's grace becomes clear. And where God's grace is clear, brothers and sisters, there's freedom. Amen? 
where God's grace is clear, there is freedom. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. That's why Paul is doing all this confrontation because he wants God's grace to be clear because where God's grace is clear, there's freedom. There's freedom. This book is all about how the gospel of grace gives us freedom. God's grace is so freeing. So the right kind of confrontation will lead you to the right kind of freedom. That's true in the church. And brothers and sisters, that's also true in our daily lives. But we have to approach things the right way. We have to approach things the right way. Let me ask you this question. Are you driven by joyful truth in your relationships with other people? Are you driven by joyful truth? And what I mean by that is do you long for your relationships to be characterized by transparency and honesty? Even those hard relationships like with that difficult boss. I want this relationship to be driven by transparency and honesty. I want to show them love and be honest with them. What about your marriages? Do you long for your marriage to honor God and exalt Christ, to follow his design for marriage? Are you driven by joyful truth? You moms and dads, do you want to see your children learn what it is to be under loving but firm Authority, authority like the authority of God. Think about his authority. God's authority often doesn't come with a lot of options. They're not the 10 options, are they? They're the 10 commandments. God's authority is often confrontational. Lovingly so, but yet confrontational. So do you long for your kids to understand? Are you driven by joy? I want you to understand the loving yet firm authority of our God. Do you long for your relationship with other people to reflect your relationship with your God and Savior? Are you driven by a joyful truth in those relationships? And, and, and as you long for that, are you willing to accept the reality that such relationships don't come easy? Such relationships don't come easy. Is your heart rooted in the sobering reality that the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit wars against the flesh? Are you willing to embrace that confrontation is part of living in this world as a Christian? It's not all peaches and creams. It's not life on easy street. This is the reality of our world. Are you willing to accept that? That fact that, that confrontation is part of living as a Christian. If so, then don't run from it. Be willing to act. Be willing to deal with those situations in your life. And to deal with them the right way. Not from fleshly frustration. Often that's what leads us to confrontation, right? I've had it up to here. But deal with them the right way. Not from fleshly frustration, but as Paul's making clear to the Galatians, dealing with them as a Christian. And as you do, as you walk in that joyful obedience, driven by God's truth, accepting the reality of this world that we live in and being willing to act as you walk in joyful obedience, you will know the blessing of freedom. You will find your relationships characterized by truth and love, not fear and frustration. And brothers and sisters, that is the formula for freedom. Amen? That's the formula for freedom. The right kind of confrontation will lead you to the right kind of freedom. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we praise you that you, as we look at your life, you're such a model of this. Always driven by the truth, always driven by love, driven by, by joyful truth. Understanding the reality of the world in which you 
You walked. Not shying away from confrontation, but always driven by what is good and right. And I pray that you would help us to be your people who really do follow you. I pray for those who are here this morning who maybe <clears throat> say, Pastor Ryan, I don't have a problem with confrontation. I love confrontation. But they love confrontation because of a fleshly desire, because of pride in their own heart. They want to show people that they're right. I pray that you would humble them. Help them to see that's not the kind of confrontation the scripture lays out for us. That's not driven by joyful truth. I pray that you would help them grow in, in really being driven by the glory of the gospel, that self-sacrifice of the gospel, that, that rejoicing in what God has done and longing to see that happen in other people's lives. Help them grow in approaching confrontation, not from fleshly means, but in the spirit. And I pray for those of us who are tempted to shy away from confrontation. Um, we're tempted to just stew on these things in our heart, to grow frustrated, um, to not address situations and just kind of let them fester. I pray that you would really challenge us looking at what Paul's saying here to the Galatians, calling them to act. So I pray that you would help us to really grab a hold of that joyful truth and let that drive us. Preach to these hearts of ours that, that there is going to be conflict in this world. This is the reality of the spirit and the flesh. Help us accept that. And then just walk in joyful obedience knowing that we are honoring you. The freedom of walking in that, of, of honoring you. What a, what a joy, what a delight. So I pray for these hearts of ours. Help us to understand how to approach conflict in a way, confrontation in a way that honors and glorifies you and is truly Christian. Thank you again for this lesson that we have here from Paul and the Galatians for, for their struggles and challenges being so edifying to us. Thank you for teaching us. By your spirit, help us to apply these things. This I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.